All right, um, kids, you're dismissed off to class. Thanks for joining us for music. The rest of you who are staying can open up to Luke chapter 6. That's where we'll be this morning. <clears throat> well, you have no doubt seen um, the hashtag blessed before. Uh, maybe you have been one who has used that uh, under a picture or a post of some sort. Um, it's interesting and curious because almost always we would look at that uh, on our, you know, our edited lives on Facebook or any kind of social media. Um, and it would be in something that would be positive. You don't ever see this, for instance, you know, someone in the hospital in a gown uh, just receiving terrible news about their, their medical health. No one, no one puts it underneath that. What we're going to be doing today is looking at all these voices that are saying this way to a blessed life um, we're going to be we're going to be looking and, and seeing um, Jesus's word on these things. Uh, Switchfoot says this: Every blessing comes with a set of curses. I want you to think about our own country, the land that I was born in and raised in, and we certainly see this to be true here in our country, where we are blessed with the right to pursue happiness. That's built into the framework of our country, and yet with all of that freedom, what do we have? We have a lot of bondage, actually. Everyone love yourself to death, says Imagine Dragons. And we've seen that as well. With the rise of self-love, that that's the, this all-important thing, um, that people find themselves enslaved to the very things that they thought would make them happy. Today, I want to make a bold claim. I want to give you the definitive path to the blessed life. I can say that with utter confidence. The one who self-identified as the way, the truth, and the life... He didn't just come up with clever titles about himself. He taught unambiguously about how to live a blessed life. But not only did he talk about it, he walked the talk. And the life that Jesus Christ lived here on earth still causes amazement worldwide as evidenced by Palm Sunday, as evidenced by Easter next weekend. As sort of a backdrop to the morning, uh, the rest of what we're going to look at here in Luke, just, just look with a moment, for a moment at, at 2 Corinthians 8 9. I want you to consider the cross, which at this point is a few years away, but the cross which is going to highlight um, with a massive exclamation mark this point that Jesus is making, that the way to true and real life is exactly opposite of what you're being told by almost everyone else. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I want to cover this morning in three different parts. We're going to look at prayer, we're going to look at being chosen by God, and then we're going to look at the, the blessed life. So in verse 12, it says this, In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Prayer and solitude, according to chapter 5, verse 16, were the custom of Jesus. That was his habit. He was known for that. Prayer and solitude have been foundational to all the spiritual greats that have gone before you. If you've learned anything from people before you, know that the discipline of solitude and prayer has been woven into their lives. 
One author says we live live in a cheap and chatty age. Does that resonate as being true? We live in a cheap and chatty age. The value of solitude, silence, and prayer have plummeted. Much of our talk and thought have followed suit. We learn this from the life of Jesus, that in every major crisis, he goes to God. And there's no difference here. What, is, what do you gain when you go to God in crisis? You gain perspective. You gain comfort. You gain guidance. Not only that, your strength is renewed. We know the psalmist talked about that often. And here's the deal. You go to God in crisis, but you practice when you're not in crisis. Get away and pray, not when you're in trouble. Get away and pray today, every day, such that when you're in a crisis, you run first and most to God. Let me talk about sol- solitude just for a second, the, the, the getaway part. By getaway, I would say this, get to the wild places. Carve out time and get to a place where you can't be reached. Not far from here, even though we live in the Silicon Valley, you can get out of cell phone range. It takes a little bit of planning. If you don't have time or the means to get out of cell phone range, figure out a way. There's some old school ways to do this. Yeah, turn it off. If you don't know how to power off your phone, isn't that crazy? Many of you don't know how to turn off your phone because you've never done it. Figure out a way to carve out time and turn off your phone or get out to the wild places where you cannot be reached. That's what solitude is about. Much is accomplished when you carve out time and space from the normal. Let me tell you what solitude is not about. Solitude in the Bible is not an escape. It's not about being alone. Rather, it is about being alone with God. Go read Psalm 139. You're never alone. Solitude is about being alone with God so that you won't be distracted from the cares of this world that weigh us down. So get away and pray. The second part is pray. What I know from experience is this. It's easy to fritter away time. You could carve out a prayer, silence, solitude, fasting, retreat. And you know what you could do? You could fritter away those hours on meaningless junk stuff. Anyone else struggle with their mind wandering to places they don't want it to go? I'm not even talking about temptation, evil, wickedness. Just dumb stuff. Carving out time, get away and pray. Take that time and actually get to your life of prayer. Um, Sometimes getting away could mean turning off your phone and finding a quiet corner of the house. Some homes are harder to find a quiet corner than other homes, right? Maybe you have to find a little spot in your backyard and you just you know, carve that out. Is that, that's sort of your, your getaway space. But this takes no more than saying, I'm going to take 15 minutes. I'm going to go to that space. My kids happen to know when I'm in that space, that's, that's my quiet time with, with me and God. That's, that's not to be bothered time. So maybe you aren't able to carve out this nice silence and solitude prayer retreat in the mountains. But maybe you can carve out time with that. Here's what we know about prayer. We know we should pray always. We know we should make it a priority. We we know we should be growing in it. We know we should have it be a great source of joy. Here's what we also know about prayer. A mountain of shoulds doesn't create a prayer life in us, does it? In fact, often a mountain of shoulds creates heavier burden on us. We go, yeah, we know all that. 
I know this, it's easier to preach on prayer, it's easier to read a book on prayer, it's easier to talk about prayer than to actually pray. I'll tell you this, many pastors struggle with prayer. Pastors are just Christians, correct? But is there anything more important for a shepherd to be doing than to be taking the concerns of the people to the one who can do something about it? Is there anything more important for a shepherd, for his people, than to be being with God in prayer, being refreshed with God in prayer, seeking comfort from God in prayer, seeking guidance from God in prayer for the people? I don't think there's anything more important for the shepherd. And yet many pastors struggle. Many pastors find it easier to do more study to have one more visit, to make one more phone call, to have a few more meetings, to strategize more than to get to the act of prayer. Prayer is heart, mind, and will. Henry Nouwen, in a book called The Way of the Heart, said this, One demonic ruse is to make us think of prayer primarily as an activity of the mind that involves, above all else, intellectual capacities. This prejudice reduces prayer to speaking with God or thinking about God. We live in a mind-saturated time. And this prejudice causes us to think of prayer in a certain way. Here's what I would say in response to that quote. If this is all that prayer is, the conversation will often feel very one-sided, and that's the reason many people give up in prayer. If all it is is in the mind, thinking thoughts about God, or just talking to God, it becomes one more taxing burden on us, and we begin to get on with more pressing matters. You ever feel that? You've carved out time in prayer, and while praying, your to-do list floats into your prayer list? Find yourself praying a quick amen and getting on to the business of life. If this is all that prayer is, then it is really exclusively for the intellectually adept, those who are skilled at these things. Most of us don't fall into that category. Praise God, prayer isn't these things. Prayer is not one-sided. Many of you could attest to this because you've lived it, but prayer is refreshing, not burdensome. Prayer is available, catch this, to all always. It's not for the elite. It's not exclusive. It's always available to us. Jesus retreated in prayer, I think for a couple of reasons. One is to model it for us, to say this is how you do it. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, is that he was living out of his humanity. Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man. What he was saying with that is he's the representation of all mankind. He was living as a human being. And living as a human being, what he did was he emptied himself of certain godlike traits. Like every man, Jesus hungered, but God doesn't get hungry. Like every man, Jesus gets tired, but God doesn't get tired. Like every man, Jesus slept, but God doesn't sleep. I just read a psalm this morning where the psalmist accuses God of being asleep, but God doesn't sleep. Jesus was tempted. God can't be tempted. Jesus died. God cannot die. Do you see that Jesus lived out of his humanity? So when Jesus gets away to pray in a crisis, do you know what he's doing? He is using at his disposal, catch this, what's available to every human being. 
This is available to all of us. So it's not that Jesus calls us to live a life that he doesn't come and actually live. He actually limited himself to need communion and refreshment and guidance and comfort and strength from God the Father. So he gets away in prayer. His all-night prayer vigil yielded some results. It was decision time. Look at verse 13. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Two words here. A disciple is simply a student or a follower, and out of these students or followers, he calls out 12 specifically apostles. What does the word apostle mean? Literally, it just means one who was sent. This is his inner circle that he is choosing. These 12 would be the all-important carriers of Jesus' mission. Here's a little foreshadowing for next week. Eleven of them would go on to be very important leaders in the early church. Because Judas, of course, betrayed. The good doctor entrusts this remedy that we just sang about to the seemingly unimpressive and underqualified. I'm not going to ask you what position you got picked. But has anyone, has anyone experienced the schoolyard pick for kickball or baseball or football or whatever? Raise your hand if you have been in that line and you've either, you've either been the one picking or you've been being picked. Raise your hand. All right. This was my life growing up. This is how we chose teams. We would sit there and pick. And sometimes I was the picker and sometimes I was the one being picked. Here's what I know about these 12. There were not rabbis lined up seeking these guys out. If there was a schoolyard pick of people to say, hey, come and be a, a, a disciple of mine, these guys would be the last picked. They are unimpressive. They literally smell bad, like fish. They reek of greed and being a traitor. Think Matthew, the tax collector. I mean, these were not the ones that you would pick. Why on earth would Jesus have picked these 12? Could it be that maybe Jesus' value system is completely reversed of what the other rabbis were thinking, of really what everyone else was thinking as well? In a few sentences that we're about to read, Jesus takes hashtag goals and like flips it on its head and makes it seem all wrong. Consider the fact that Judas is on the list. The Iscariot Judas. This after a whole night of prayer by Jesus. You ever pray and think you heard wrong from God? I don't know what the exit interview with Jesus would be like if it were you exit interviewing, but you're like, "Ah, 11 out of 12. And the 12 didn't, you know, the 12th guy didn't just fall away. He became a traitor. So question for you. Did Jesus fail at prayer? Did Jesus hear wrong? Did Jesus fail in the execution of what God told him to do? Tension. You're thinking, I know theologically that Jesus lived the perfect life. I'm pretty sure Jesus doesn't fail at prayer. So what could this be? Well, what we know is this. Like me, you have prayed, maybe all night long. 
maybe many long nights. And you have prayed and prayed and prayed. And you have heard from God and you have executed. And then you see things unfold in a way that's thoroughly confusing. Can you attest with me that God's ways and plans are higher than our ways? Can you confirm, like I can confirm, that with the passage of time, more and more of the prayers that I thought I heard or thought I understood have actually come into fruition? I've seen God, who sees the beginning from the end, work things out for good in a redeeming way. Doesn't that give me faith that when I'm praying and things aren't turning out the way that I see fit, isn't this long list of track record where God keeps working things out and I go, oh, that's why that in this question mark phase that I'm in, I can hope one day, God, you're going to make all this right. You've never failed me yet. Friends, Jesus didn't fail in prayer. What we can look at and see right now is that God has a plan and a purpose Think a little deeper for a second. Jesus chose you. If you are a carrier of the remedy, if your eyes have been opened to the grace of Jesus Christ, you have now been made an ambassador of Jesus Christ, a carrier of the remedy, a proclaimer of the gospel. You are saying, this is the way. This is the truth. This is the life. Your life, Christian, is a life of worship. Your life is a sign pointing to Jesus. Now think with me for a second. I read this psalm earlier this week and it leapt out at me. Psalm 41, David is crying out because people are wronging him. It's one thing to have enemies wrong you. It's another to have your very closest around you wrong you. Here's what he says in Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. This is King David crying out that his closest inner circle, one he trusted, the act of a meal in the ancient East was this intimate act of friendship. What we know, fast forward time, is that Jesus applies this verse to himself, predicting that he'd be betrayed by Judas. You know, Judas gets the bad rap, But isn't it true that all who were there around the table that night would betray Jesus? The shepherd was struck down and the sheep scatter. Every one of them has betrayed. Christian, let me ask you a question. Haven't you shared the Lord's Supper? Haven't you eaten the bread? Haven't you drunk the wine? And then haven't you walked out of this place and denied Jesus by your lifestyle? Friend, hear me. I hope you never get over this. It's the great grace of Jesus Christ that entrusts his remedy to us. It's the great grace of Jesus Christ that we don't deny, just like Judas, just like Peter. I mean, Peter called down a curse on himself. He was so trying to convince people that he wasn't with Jesus. And yet God in his great grace continues to use clay pots. He continues to use basically as it were Tupperware, very unimpressive vessels. 
All right. Let me read on with verse 17. Jesus has his ragtag cabinet all set. And what you see is both disciples and crowds gathering to him. Verse 17, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, two different categories, from all Judea and Jerusalem and of the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. Some have called this the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount before, right? That's in Matthew 5. Luke 6, some have called the Sermon on the Plain. Why? Because Jesus is here on a, on a level place. So there's some similar teaching that we're going to see from the more famous Beatitudes of Matthew 5. But Jesus, like teachers do, spends time reminding and repeating and saying some of the same things in slightly different ways. So Jesus is now going to tell us plainly about the blessed life. There's four blessed statements and four cursed or woe statements. Before we get into the specifics, consider Jesus as the great moral teacher. Our whole series for Luke has been the good doctor. That refers to a young man who comes to him and says, good teacher. Here's what I want to highlight about that. Calling Jesus a great moral teacher, by the way, if you look at the History Channel or BBC or all kinds of TV shows this week, they will show all kinds of things about Jesus. Countdown to Calvary, the real Jesus, the historical Jesus, the Jesus you never knew, all kinds of titles and things. I used to watch these with fascination and kind of reading, watching them, but I found it so frustrating to hear a perspective given on a TV show that was so detached and so one-sided and so sort of forced into an angle um, that, that it's, it's been too frustrating to watch many of these. Let me say this. Much of what I've seen on these shows leading up to Easter, much of what dots the cover of Time and Newsweek and these magazines, um, is, is devoid of biblical truth. It certainly isn't starting with the Bible as the Word of God. It certainly isn't looking even at extracurricular things that aren't Christian that confirm and ver verify Jesus. But now I'm on a rabbit trail. Let me get back to it. Great moral teacher, you've heard this. Here's a true statement. Almost everyone I've heard that says, well, Jesus was a, was a good moral teacher or a great moral teacher, but when they have given them that title, here's a, a, a dual reality. One is there's, there's no more apt title for him. Although it's incomplete, that's a good, that's a good and fitting title for Jesus. He was a good moral teacher, but so much more. Secondly, most everyone who says that is really giving a backhanded compliment to Jesus, right? What they're saying is, I'll concede that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he certainly didn't do the miracles that the, that the Gospels uh, talk about. He certainly didn't rise from the dead. He certainly isn't worth being worshipped the way that you Christians worship him. Anyone have that experience, something along those lines? Have you had that, that kind of conversation? Here's a curious thing. Think about this the next time someone gives you that, okay, he is a good moral teacher. Here's a question. If Jesus is a good or great moral teacher, does it not stand to reason that those who would consider themselves good in our culture, those who would consider themselves moral in our culture, should heed and listen and follow the teachings of this great moral teacher? Here's an interesting response that I'm going to try and use the next time. 
The truth is, every time someone has said, well, he's a good moral teacher, they've never gone on to quote any of his teaching. They've never gone on to highlight what they love about his teaching. So the next time someone says this, here's what I'm going to try to remember to do. Someone says, oh, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. Here's what I'd say. I'd say, oh, I totally agree. Which one of his teachings is your favorite? I mean, let's talk about that. He was such a great moral teacher, I couldn't agree more. Oh, there's so many. Which ones? And they might stammer out, um, cleanliness is next to godliness? You know, they, I, I don't know what they would give me. But I can almost guarantee you, they will quote Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln or George. They will not quote Jesus, most likely. So when people say he's a good moral teacher, what they're really doing is they are about to deny the biblical Jesus. They're about to deny the historical Jesus. That's one and the same. There's a famous Oxford professor, you may have heard of him, called C.S. Lewis. And he pointed out that Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. There's no middle option for this. So if, in fact, he's willfully lying, then he should be condemned. Even if some good came out of his mouth, he should be condemned if he knows he's not God and he's preaching himself that way. Or if he's gone mad, that's British for crazy, then Jesus should simply be dismissed. We, we shouldn't esteem him, sing about him, worship him, and gather. But if, in fact, Jesus is who he claimed to be, is the title that got him killed, then we should fall down at his feet and worship him. And we should live like him and obey his clear teaching in Scripture. Jesus is good. He's the good doctor, and the good doctor heals both the here and now and the eternal. Uh, my son broke his collarbone this week. And when you break a collarbone, unlike many other bones, it's very difficult to go in and set a bone. But let's say that you were to break this bone. You would go in and you would have a doctor that knows what they're doing set the bone, right? So the bone has been shattered, and they are resetting the bone for a couple of reasons. One, and primarily, is so that it will regain functionality. It'll begin to function again once it heals the way it was designed to function. Secondly, you know what it'll do? It'll stop the pain. If you leave a bone shattered in your arm, it's just going to be in there. Now think about this for a second. Jesus healed the sick. He cured those who had spiritual, emotional brokenness. He cured those who had physical brokenness. And he also heals by his teaching so you you reset a brain for the same reason you reset a bone you reset the mind you reset the brain and you are putting it back into place why so it can regain its strength and so that it can have the functionality that it was designed to have you reset the brain why because it stops the pain until you reset the mind, you live with the pain of brokenness. So that's what Jesus is going to do. Look at verse uh, 19. It says this, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, or verse 20, and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day 
and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Four blessed statements. Ready? Now here's the four woes. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When Jesus is talking about blessed, he's talking about happy. But he's talking about truly happy, deep lasting happiness. And when he's talking about woe, a woe is a severe warning. Write this down under woe, without end. W-O-E. A woe is a warning that without end, as in you will have sorrow, pain, agony, and regret without end if you continue in this lifestyle path. These few words that we just read should be a shock to our system. Like ice bucket challenge shock to our soul. It should so wake us up. Because everything in our culture is preaching and screaming and promising exactly the opposite. Do whatever it takes to stay off that first list. And do whatever you have to to get on the second list. This title that we have um, is obviously written upside down and backwards. Some of you might be dyslexic and you're like, finally in church they get it. Like finally I get a title. It's like, here we go. I can, I can see it. That's your blessing that came with that curse of being dyslexic. You see this just fine. But it's written upside down and backwards. And let me point out a couple of things. With that little hashtag, there are eight characters. That's to remind you there's four blessings and four woes in this passage that we're looking at. Jesus is not playing hide-and-go-seek or being elusive. I wanted to show you this title this way because, because when you have something that's correct and it looks utterly upside down and completely backwards of everything you've heard, it actually shows just how upside down and just how backwards your thinking has become, your sight has become. So when we see this, this is how Jesus' words landed on his first hearers. Wait, what? Blessed are the poor? It's almost impossible for rich people to get into heaven? Then who could be saved? Church, answer me this. I mean, one of the greatest sins in our culture, in our world today, is to be poor. One of the greatest signs that you are on the right track is that you're wealthy, healthy, and comfortable. Now, for all the wrong reasons, all the different reasons, people want to save people out of their poverty because that's the worst thing that could happen to someone on this planet. So, correct comes along and it looks downright bizarre. But here's what Jesus is doing. He is resetting your way of thinking because it's been broken. The rest of the world will tell you to adjust to your brokenness. This... Is normal. I'm not in pain. You come along and say, friends, this is possible. 
true joy that's impervious to the stuff of life is possible. I'm genuinely happy. They will call you a liar. If you call out that this is broken, you know what they'll call you? A hater. You're just a hater. They'll call you something phobic. They'll basically say, no, 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 no. This is normal. This is good. I'm beautiful. All these messages will constantly bombard. And to speak anything different, you'll be called a liar or worse. Next week, I'm going to, or in a couple weeks, I'm going to look at this a little bit more, but think about the virtues of our culture. What if you had four blessings to give from our culture? I'm going to give you mine in a couple weeks. You can, you can kind of think on it for a little bit. But here's what good moral people say. Let me, just, let me just summarize it maybe into something kind of memorable. Here it is. Do what makes you happy. And above all else, don't Im- impose your beliefs on someone else. Do whatever makes you happy. And don't be judgmental. Don't impose your stuff on someone else. That's sort of a summary of the four that, that I came up with. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of what, of what you think sort of the good moral voices of our culture would say are virtues and how they stack up to Jesus, okay? So as we, as we look, look through each of these. So what I want to do is this. Um, poor versus rich. Let's look at that. Poverty makes someone desperate and helpless. That's true materially speaking, in the physical sense, the everyday sense, and it's true spiritually. Often, not always, but often this leads them to seek out God and depend on God. Why? Because they have nothing else. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew adds sort of a real spiritual tone to this. So maybe when Jesus was teaching on the mountain, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know what Luke does here on the Sermon on the Plains? It's, it's left wide open. So I interpret that to mean, that means the stuff of life. That means in a very literal, physical sense here and now. And there's, of course, also a spiritual component to it. While poverty makes one desperate for God, wealth often has the great potential to blind someone to their own desperate need. The curse that comes with riches is the dual pitfall of self-reliance and self-righteousness. Self-reliance is, I'll say I need, but really I don't need. I'll pray and maybe even go through some motions, but really I'm the one who gets me out of troubles. Self-righteousness is this. I am where I am because I worked hard for it. I actually used the good gifts God gave me to do something with it. Aren't I the smart farmer who planted and tended and was patient and paid the price early, so now I'm reaping the rewards later on? Friends, this creeps in all the time to our brains. Wealth comes with it, self-reliance, and self-righteousness. Watch for it. Guard against it. Think about the rich young ruler. We'll get to the rich young ruler later on in, in the book of Luke. But think about it for a second. Isn't the rich young ruler the bullseye of what people are shooting for? Most people. He's rich. Well, that seems like a good thing. He's young. Isn't youth kind of worshipped? And he's a ruler. He has power. 
I mean, friends, the rich young ruler, he's the very center of the target. He's got it all going on. And Jesus, with a single sentence, exposes the lie of his false god. What's his false god? Wealth, riches. Was the rich young ruler hungry for God? Of course not. He was rich. He depended on himself. He even depended on his good works of law-keeping. And he was also self-righteous. How about the hungry versus the filled? Again, hunger has a spiritual as well as material nature to it. In both senses, famine has a way of waking people up, and they turn to God to get their fill. Those who are already filled experience all the comfort they will ever get. They'll be less likely to be filled with God if the fluff of life has them topped off. When you are stuffed to the brim with all this life has to, got to offer, there is no room left for God. We just sang this, and I just did it. It's a good exercise once in a while. When we sing this, the, the, the line in the song that says, we open our hands. When you open your hands, you're not grabbing. You have room left for God to put something in your hands, to cling to this love that we can't understand. And when we sing that line next time, open your hands up as a physical act of saying, God, I just, I let go of all this other stuff that would keep me from you. We had a family party at the beach months ago, and I'm there with my aunt. And um, we were kind of setting food out and stuff, and we had just a gazillion kids running around. And we put out the veggie tray and the pistachios first. You know why? Because there were chips in the bag also. What happens if you put out chips, veggies, and pistachios? The chips go, vroom, gone. I mean, you don't even get a, a, a breath in it. They're just, vroom, gone. So we put out the veggies and the pistachios because kids are ravenous, and then they're not. You notice that? I'm hungry right now. Awesome. Eat a carrot. So you put out the stuff that's going to actually maybe do some sustenance for them, maybe do some good for them, because you know that once the chips come out, they're not going to be up. What happens when you do it the other way? Don't we use this term all the time? You ruin your appetite. I want chips now. Why can't I have them? Because you'll ruin your appetite. Don't you hear the words of Jesus? Do you know you're quoting a scriptural idea? You put out the fluff of life and you fill up on that. You have no appetite left for God. Um, anyone eat a cheese puff recently? Okay, I made the mistake this week. I ate a cheese puff. Bizarre. It's a bizarre food. I have no idea what's in that little thing. But you know what's weird about it? I ate it. I immediately thought that was a bad choice. And then I wanted another one. What's that about? When you fill up on cheese puffs and, and the good stuff doesn't even sound appealing anymore. Blessed are the hungry. Here's a curious thing about the hungry and the filled. Every one of them experiences hunger and filling. It's just a matter of when and how sustaining it is. The hungry now and the filled now will be inverted later on. How about the weepers and the laughers? As you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there is a long list of biblical weepers. The Psalms are filled with it. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, we went through that book recently. Lamentations, an entire book of lament. How about Jesus? Wasn't Jesus well acquainted with sorrow? A man of grief? 
Sorrow accompanies the godly in a dark age. I think it ought to accompany the reputation of his followers that they're weepers. What does that mean? Let me, let me turn it a little bit and say sober, sober-minded. Eat, drink, and be merry is the catchphrase of the laughers. What's their favorite pastime? Raise a glass. Raise a glass and raise another. Let's keep toasting because this is really fun. Let's toast to toasting because we still have more liquid to drink. Eat, drink, and be merry is, is the catchphrase, is the goal of a lot of people um, that, that are living this life. There are those being laughed at, and there are those doing the laughing. Jesus was on the being laughed at team. So you ought to know that when you sign up for Jesus' team, you are joining the laughed at team. You'll find yourself in the company of Christ. And this passage makes no bones about it that that ought to be cause for great rejoicing. Here's a caution for us. Be careful, little heart, what you find humorous. Be careful, little heart, what you laugh at. If you find this world entertaining and full of joy, then the kingdom come will in fact grow laughable to you. Why on earth would you wait for later if eat, drink, and marry can happen now? That's the subtle slide and subtle shift. Let's go on to the hated versus the popular. Here's my challenge to you. Be an outsider. Get excluded for the right reasons. Here's a little hint. You won't have to work at it. Just live the Jesus life in the power of the Holy Spirit and you'll get laughed at. You'll get excluded. You'll get reviled. It will find you. Those who are popular those who are well-loved, those who are always complimented. Luke says this, you are on the team of the false prophets. There are plenty of books, plenty of seminars, plenty of preachers, plenty of individuals that are just agreeing with and saying this, God is fine with you. You're okay. Don't change. Don't let anyone try to change you. You're beautiful the way you are. Let me say this. Some people's great sin and the way they soothe their soul is through acceptance of other people. They're people pleasers. There's a little thread of people pleasing in every one of us. But for some, this is their great go-to thing. Let me say this if that's you. The reason people are cheering you on with this message has everything to do with their own rebellion to God and nothing to do with your great insight. So don't buy into it. Let me give this conclusion. Jesus is warning anyone who will listen that you are falling to your death and you don't even realize it. In the movie Toy Story... Woody and Buzz are arguing about whether he's a real spaceman and whether or not he can fly. Buzz then goes on to prove that he can actually fly 
You may remember, he bounces off the bed with a shout, to infinity and beyond. And through a series of bizarre circumstances, he ricochets off a ball, rebounds into the air, gets slung around in the fan, and lands safely on the bed. All the toys shout, he flew, he flew. Exasperated, Woody declares, that wasn't flying, that was falling with style. I think we celebrate and marvel at those in our culture who are falling with style. And here's what's worse. We begin to mimic them. We begin to fall in line with what they are doing because we see them fly. Hear this. Jesus is warning then and now that we are falling uncontrollably to our death. But there's a way to actually fly. That's what hashtag blessed Hashtag woe is all about. Let me have the band come on up right now. You have a decision to make today. Jesus lays out two really clear choices. One's a path to life. One is a path to death. One won't require much change at all. You know why? The default position of the human heart is comfort now, ease now, fill now, power now, acceptance now. Jesus is saying there's a second alternative. There's a second way of living It's available to one and all, and it will cost you absolutely nothing. All you have to do is believe. And yet, it will cost you everything, right? You leave this life of comfort that you've built for yourself, this small measure of popularity, this ease that you so desire. Leave it behind and follow me, says Jesus. This word woe is a really, really severe warning to us. Your very life is at stake with this decision, Jesus says. I don't know if any of you have done this, but I'm going to try to remember this next time this happens to me. If you ever get caught in an avalanche, the first thing you should do is spit. Rescuers have found people who were buried feet below below the surface. And they realized that they started just beneath the surface and started to frantically dig to save their life, only to discover they were going the wrong way. What happens when you're caught in an avalanche? You get thoroughly disoriented. Why do you spit? Because spit isn't tricked as to which way is up and down. Isn't this a metaphor for life? That people are digging furiously for the surface to save their very life. And the rescuers find a cold, lifeless, dead body. Why? Because they dug down instead of up. Christian, hear me. This isn't a one-time decision. You will get duped back into thinking you are going straight to the top when you're digging your way to your death. Jesus sets out a choice for us. Kingdom of heaven or kingdom of the here and now. There is allegiance that comes along with that. There's no third option. Joel Osteen is wrong. You can't have your best life now and ignore the pick up your cross and carry it with you now. That's not what Jesus says. I want you to close your eyes and I want to let me read to you a little letter out of this passage to two different categories of people. Maybe you'll hear yourself in one or the other. Dear, full, comfortable, popular, and laughing. Warning! Spit! 
Pull up. Examine your life in the light of Jesus' words and actions. Your worldly comforts and possessions have spiritually anesthetized you. Wake up before it's too late. You are filled in every way but that which matters most. Full schedule. Full closet. Full pantry. Full garage. Full stomach. You even have a full storage unit. You are a full fool. How will you ever cram God into your crowded life? While bloated on the richest food, eternal good is passing you by. Enjoy it, because that's all the comfort you'll ever have. This is as good as it will ever get for you. Here's letter two. Dear deeply dissatisfied, you are left wanting by this life. You are uncomfortable, unpopular, and frankly, unamused. There is great hope. You weren't meant to be deeply satisfied apart from God. Your discomfort and disappointment with this, with, with all that this world offers is a clear and telling sign. You were made for another world. This life is a precursor to eternity. Let the disappointment and rejection wean you off the things you try to soothe and quiet your soul with. Suffering is not only a threat to your satisfaction in God. Suffering is a means to your satisfaction in God. Let your troubles remind you of the rich life you have in God. Nothing will ever touch the blessed life that you possess in Him.